85% of adults say they regularly experience stress with half recognising that they are too stressed. We need to talk about anxiety. This autumn, we'll be looking at some of the different forms of anxiety and the issues that can be on our minds. Jesus had a lot to say about mental well-being and we believe his gospel is the very best solution to dealing with anxiety. And I was just like, but I don't care. And I grabbed every pill. I was like, don't know what that is. Take that, take that. And fortunately for me, there was nothing majorly, but I emptied everything floating in the clouds. I didn't know what was going on, but, you know, thankfully I didn't kill myself. But that was, I didn't care at that moment. I was like, I don't care. And I've just had enough. And it was, um, I just basically reached a point where it's like, I just can't take it no more. I became a Christian two years after that. That was wonderful. And so I had this incredible joy and I knew like I was loved and forgiven. But I quickly found out, you know, I stopped cussing. I walked out of church, stopped cussing. And I, I stopped um, the drugs, literally. That was it. And so I was like, wow, I am truly born again. I am a Christian. But then I shortly after found out like, I've still got this stuff going on inside and it hasn't departed just because I became a Christian. It's really good to see you. I've been away for the last three Sundays. So for me, it's a treat just to be back with you guys. And um, if you're new here, my name is Joel. We're going through a series of messages uh, on the theme of anxiety over this autumn uh, series. And, and as you saw just now, we're handling suicide tonight so uh, apologies if you're here on a completely different ticket um, suicide is the theme not many jokes tonight but uh, I still hope and trust that uh, this message will be helpful to all of us for all kinds of different reasons it's good for us to know to be instructed to be wise as to this very important part of human experience uh, and so we're going to dig into what the Bible has to say about it uh, but like I say, I've missed you guys. I've been away in the last three Sundays in different places. That um, Last week I was in uh, London with the churches that we're working with uh, there, Greenwich and New Cross. It's actually one church, but uh, multi-site, those two places. Uh, a church called Emmanuel, strange name for a church. And um, the week before that I was with my wife in a conference in Cyprus with uh, the wider New Frontiers family of churches that we, we work with. Um, it was just such a privilege to be with just about 50 different people, about 20 to 30 couples actually, who are helping to establish and, and build strong churches across the world. Uh, people from uh, China and Russia and Africa and uh, uh, America, and just people who are in many cases facing genuinely uh, difficult challenges, um, facing difficult governments and difficult cultures, and, and, but serving Jesus. And I always come away from meetings like that with brothers and sisters who are really good friends of ours in, in circumstances that would make me think, I don't know how I'm going to get out of bed this morning. And, and they always make me feel happier. They always come across more joyful than, than me with all my first world problems. So um, it's just good for us to, to know that we're part of a global family. And then the week before that, I was in Amsterdam with Matt and Joe Simmons. Some of you would know them who went from this church to plant into Amsterdam a few years ago. They're starting their third service in the spring. 
they're already gathering two services on a Sunday morning and evening, spoke at both, and they're in both venues already at capacity. Uh, so they, they, it's just phenomenal. God is doing something so exciting in that church, and uh, we're so pleased to be partnering with them. So let's get into this topic today. Um, it is a, a growing concern nationally. Uh, in the year 2018, there was a hike by just under 12% up in the suicide rate in the UK, which ought to concern us anyway. The demographic that seems to be most at risk is men in their late 40s. But the biggest jump was amongst people under 25. And uh, that jumped up by 23.7% just in the year 2018. So we are talking about a growing issue and a lot of people would, would want to raise the question why is this happening we've talked over the last few weeks as we've gone through this series on anxiety about the the kind of social trends and the things that perhaps contribute to the 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 the, 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 the rising uh, issues to do with mental health and uh, i think they definitely apply to this there is a disintegration of community family life people having less and less of a sense of belonging. The more we concentrate on gratifying the individual, it seems the more the individual feels lost in the world without a sense of meaning. And that has got to contribute, I think, quite reasonably to the growing rates. Uh, but I want to look at what the Bible has to say. And we're going to start just by reading, actually, from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. And then we'll be looking at some other scriptures as well. This is taken from uh, one of Paul's letters to the church in Corinth. And I'll refer to it again before we finish the end of this message. But let's just have the words up on the screen and we'll have it read to us now. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 to 10. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, a friend of mine was telling me of his uh, experience of watching a friend of his attempt suicide. This was years back. Uh, but in this case, their friendship was really damaged. It took him a long time to even learn to forgive this friend of his who'd attempted suicide. And he was surprised by how uh, much of a, a, a kind of rock of offence it had put into him, how much he, he struggled, how much he, he felt hurt and bewildered by his, his friend's behaviour. And I guess it goes to show the, the way that this issue, even in our kind of post-Christian uh, world where people generally take issues of God and eternity and even the sanctity of life and, uh, and, and death less and less seriously. You know, we live in, in, I think, a much less spiritually or at least less kind of biblically spiritually aware society. Nevertheless, suicide, it, it still leaves something uh, very 
very dark in our, in our minds and our imaginations, and it, it causes people to even have to deal with a, a sense of betrayal, rejection. Why, why, why did you act so independently? Why did you isolate me when you made this decision to end your life? It's, it's amazing how much it can feel like a personal thing. Maybe the clue is in the name. Suicide literally means to cut oneself off. And I guess that's what the, the person who, who takes their own life is doing. They're, they're cutting themselves off. They're isolating themselves in the fullest sense possible from everybody. From, from friends, family, from people who they've loved and who've loved them. Uh, cutting themselves off from their future. Cutting themselves off ultimately from God. And historically the church has treated it as a, a very... A grave thing, a very dark thing indeed. Even though, understandably, as a culture, we, we, we are really encouraged to reach out with compassion and generous love and kindness to people who, who may have struggled with suicidal uh, thoughts and tendencies or have attempted to take their lives or even people who have taken their lives. We, we, we want to do the right thing and be compassionate towards them but we still feel the weightiness of it. And that I think does line up with what the Bible seems to say about human life and its importance and our, our need to recognise that, that it's not for us to be Lord over our uh, living or dying. But the Bible as well at the same time is really, really surprisingly rounded in the way it describes the ordinary process that people will go through emotionally, personally, who are dealing with this, this, this whole dilemma of taking their lives or not. You, you might expect the Bible to kind of just be so uh, sort of sterile in its kind of religiousness and, and removedness, that it's kind of pure and holy and therefore it, it can't really engage with the ordinary grit of human life. It doesn't really work on our plane, our experience. It doesn't really sympathise with us. But that's where we're so wrong. If that's what you think, I just urge you to please read the Bible because you will always be surprised at how incredibly human the Bible is. I mean, the, the, the Psalms, just top of my head example, if you just go through the, the list of 150 Psalms in the Old Testament, the spiritual songs of Israel, you'll notice that there are places of such honest human despair uh, in expression. And then there are some uh, actual cases of suicides that perhaps the most significant in the Old Testament is King Saul. But King Saul is presented as one of the most three-dimensional characters, I think, in, in literature, in, in, let alone in the Bible. You, you feel he's such a tragic figure, even in his mistakes, even in his terrible mistakes, even in some of his wicked things. You always feel sympathy for him. You feel like this man is a, an extraordinarily sympathetic person. You feel like you're going on the journey with him right to the very end. And then there are those people in the Bible who don't necessarily commit suicide, but they express suicidal tendencies really explicitly. They, they pour it out to God in quite dramatic moments. Maybe you've read or, or come across the story of Job in the Old Testament. Job is the, the character whose sufferings are most kind of fully described and, and in all their kind of you know, agony. And there are points where he cries out to God with, with suicidal prayers. 
really effectively saying, God, take my life from me. I, I wish I was never born. And kind of cursing himself and, and longing for it all to end and crying out to God for his life to be over. Jeremiah, similarly emotional book and emotional person, prays the same way. Quite dramatic prayers of longing for his life to end. Cursed be the day that I was born. Cursed be the one that announced my birth, he even says. He's so full of despair, so full of deep sorrow. And we might imagine, yeah, the Bible doesn't understand you know, 21st century depression. But we're wrong. We, we, we've not really taken the patient time to investigate just how human is this book. It knows and, and, and speaks of experiences in just the same way as, as we do, these thousands of years later. One of my favorite characters in the whole Bible is Elijah. Uh, Elijah, I, I find extraordinary on nearly every level, partly because he's sort of so <laughs> kind of apparently superhuman. He's like a kind of Marvel character in some ways. It's just, just constantly astonishing, powerful things that seem to happen. He looks like he's on a different plane. He looks extraordinary until we discover that he's all too ordinary. And he gets to a point, a really moving point in his story in, in 1 Kings chapter 19. One of the most, for me, beautiful chapters. It's so, it's so powerful the way it describes his, his deep depression and his isolating of himself. He kind of goes through a time of fear and then cowardice and emotional exhaustion and runs, runs. He runs away from everything. Runs away from home, runs away from the nation, runs away from his enemies, runs away from his people, runs away from his friends. He even literally intentionally leaves behind his last friend, tells, sends them away, go, leave me alone, leave me alone, I must go, I must be alone. He, he runs into the wilderness, away from himself, away from God, it would seem. But God being God chases him into the wilderness, finds him. And, and, and yet the way that Elijah prays, take my life from me, it is enough. I am no better than my father's. In other words, I am a failure. I have utterly, completely failed. I am nothing. I despair. It's over. Take my life. There's others I could mention. It just isn't time. But I want you to see that this, this book is rich with this uh, side of our experience. It shows the, the power of despair. And sorrow to bring us to the brink of such a, a radically kind of counterintuitive decision. When I say that, I mean the normal intuition, the normal instinct that we've got as human beings is for survival, right? We want to live. <laughs> Life's good. We'd rather live than die, generally. That's, that's what we're wired for. We will strive to stay alive. And if you've seen a film like uh, 127 Hours, which is based on a true story where, where a guy literally cuts off one of his own limbs in order to, to survive in an emergency situation. You, you get an image right there of the normal human instinct. Survival. I just, I just want to live. And yet suicide tells us that, that someone can be brought to such a place of despair that that instinct for survival is kind of overcome by an instinct of despair. 
And suicide kind of presents itself in those circumstances as, I guess, a kind of an escape route, as a means of rest of some kind. It kind of comes to say, I'll give you rest. I'll give you a way out. And it, doing that, it's kind of presenting itself. Well, does it remind you of anybody? I'll, I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. Come with me. Come to me. It's kind of the, the claim. And people, in spite of the, the slender hope that it, it's based on, will nevertheless go with that, that kind of false gospel, that false claim, that false advertising. I'll give you relief. Relief is to be for there is some possible relief here. We don't necessarily know. One of the, one of the features of deep depression and, and suicidal tendencies will, will be just being so struck with, with a feeling of not knowing anything, not being sure of anything. So how we can be sure of what's to come after death? We can't. We can't. That's why people will generally step back, you know, in the, in the story of Hamlet, you know, how he, he comes so close to suicide in his famous speeches and then pulls back with the, that word, conscience doth make cowards of us all. You know, the thought of what might be coming to me afterwards, I pull back. But for some people, even with that potential for horror after death, it doesn't matter, this is anything is better than this, or it seems so anyway. And so suicide kind of moves up to us, making a claim on us, making a, a strong claim, preaching a message, preaching a gospel to us, preaching a certain hope to us. And at first it, it would seem unthinkable. Some of you would have had this very experience where, where suicide has seemed an option to you, just at moments in your life, where there's perhaps privately in your secret place, maybe you've never told anybody, there have been times in your life where you've shocked yourself with the voice, I could just end it now. I remember just personally, one occasion specifically, where I, I, I was in a situation where I realised that thought has actually gone in, I've taken that thought, Seriously, for a moment. And in that case, I kind of pulled away, shocked, shocked at myself, deeply, you know, I was in tears. I couldn't believe, I, what's going on? But the problem is that suicide kind of, well, it seems to operate like a, a, a forced companion on you. It's like there's, there's a, a voice that, that, that assumes a relationship with you, forces their friendship on you. Maybe you've been in a situation like that where somebody's just, just forced their presence into your life and you kind of can't get rid of them. You kind of maybe at first feel you, you, you can't, you ought not to. You maybe have a slightly wrong-headed sense of hospitality or you, know, you, you, you want to be nice to them. But then after a while you realise, I, I actually can't get this person out of my life. They've assumed a certain familiarity with me. I can't, they just might, I'm stuck with them. And that, that, that's not funny after a while, that can even become sinister. But the thing is, it can happen internally. Not specific people, but kind of people, like in the sense that the companionship of a suicidal voice can assume a position in your heart that you begin to question less and less. 
you, you kind of almost allow it to treat you with authority. It kind of starts to, to, to have a place in your mind, in your thinking, and you start to give it space. And it takes the space you give it, and it doesn't really allow for dialogue. Suicidal thoughts aren't interested in, in conversation, not really, not true, not true dialogue. The order of the day is you, you will agree with this evaluation of your uselessness, your worthlessness, and your hopelessness and the pointlessness of carrying on. That's it. There's no conversation. There's no dialogue. There's no questioning it. It's like a person that's kind of forced their way into your life. Maybe you've seen the um, nature documentaries that show what cuckoos do to get their young raised. Maybe you know what they'll sometimes do is they'll literally lay eggs in, in the nests of other birds. And it's, it's really, it's quite something. If you see it being kind of shown on, on the nature films, a, a cuckoo will hatch before the other chicks from you know, another, another bird, another uh, species, whatever the word is, and, and they'll hatch and start to throw the other eggs out. So they're the surviving but false offspring of the mother of this other nest. And so the, the, the mother goes back and forth to get food, but feeds them, feeds the food to this false offspring. This cuckoo. While its true young are being gradually bumped off, sent out of the nest. And it, it, it's horrible anyway, but then you see the cuckoo starting to become monstrously big. Bigger bird than the mother. So it can end up being like three or four times the size of this dutiful bird that's full of maternal instincts. I've got to feed my young. I've got to feed my young. doesn't realise it's not, it's not your young. But you've got to feed it. I've got to feed it. It's been tricked. And that's kind of what we do inwardly. We, we, we are so convinced that this, this thing we're feeding, this voice we're feeding... This liar that we're feeding is, is ours. Jesus said, the devil is a liar and the father of lies. A liar and the father of lies. He does his work by deception. That's really, that's really what he does. He's very, very good at it. He's very good at it. He's a liar and he's the father of lies. And he says he comes to kill and to destroy. And then in the same sentence, Jesus said, but I have come that you might have life. And life in all its fullness. This is really important. Maybe, maybe even right now for some people here. Because you've only perhaps just now begun to see, oh my, I've been deceived. Maybe you've tried to talk to somebody before who's like just really struggling with depression in a, in a, in a way that does mean they're kind of in a, in a lonely place. And sometimes it can be like you're trying to persuade something of something that is utterly plain to you. It's utterly obvious. But the person that's struggling with depression, it seems the opposite. It seems to them it's actually obviously not true. And it stops being about reasonable argument, 
And you start to realize how, how deep this stuff can go into the heart. Lies make their home not just in our intellect. Lies make their home in our passions, in our, in our desires, in, in our assumptions that we build life around. Lies can go that deep. That's why situations can be so hopeless and seem so totally lost. And that's why we need someone as great as Jesus to get into the heart of the situation, overturn the lies. It is, it is easy sometimes for an outsider to see because the, the, the suicidal person's instincts do seem irrational. It's, it's, it will be built on things that you, you know. You know that they couldn't possibly believe that. Things like, oh, well, if I, if I take my life, it won't matter to other people. People will forget. I, I don't matter to anybody. Or if I do, well, not much. They'll get over it. And it's, it's like it's kind of willing to believe something that they've got to know that's not true. That the idea that if I take my life, then maybe there, there's... There's relief. In fact, I'm kind of hoping for relief. I'm hoping for uh, a good afterlife, maybe. Which is, just, just think of it, just in the case of the person that's saying that, the person is likely to be therefore saying, there's no hope for me in this life. If you say there's no hope for you in this life, what you're saying is, God doesn't really care for me at the moment. God doesn't really want, any, God can't get me out of this situation. God can't help me, doesn't want to, there's something wrong. So we're prepared to believe at that, in that level, a monstrous lie about God, but we're prepared nevertheless to throw our lives into the, the hands of eternity and the vain hope that well, somehow he'll he, he be good in that context. It's irrational. It stops being about logic. It stops being about reasonable argument because it isn't built on that. It's built on a lie that's got in deep. And when you have a lie that's got in deep, you... you, you you can start to imagine that you've got authority with it. It's just powerful. I, I know what's to come. I know there's no hope for me. I know. I just know. I know. I don't, no, don't, don't try and persuade me. Life is not going to get better. It's not. It cannot. It just can't. How can you know that? How can anybody know that? That, that was Elijah's prayer in, in, in the Old Testament. He says, I am the only one left. My life is over. I am the only one. And God comes to him and says, there are thousands of others and your life is not over. You think it's over, I tell you, it's hardly begun. The things you've done up till now are small in comparison with what's to come. We can be so sure that we know the future. We can start making bizarre pre predictions, but we're so sure of them. How often have your predictions about the future been right? How, how, how good a prophet are you, knowing exactly what's to come? But the suicidal person is just so convinced they're right. So how do we deal with, with, with these, kinds of, these kinds of irrational convictions? This is one of the reasons that it's so important to obey what Jesus says about stopping In fact, what the Bible from the beginning to end says about stopping. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus tells us to consider things, to look at things. Consider the birds of the air, the sparrow. Consider the lilies. Look, look, look. Stop and look. Obeying Jesus often means taking time. Obeying Jesus often means patience. 
often means allowing <laughs> the rhythm to change, allowing some forced pauses in. That's why Sabbath is in the Bible. On the first page of the Bible, Sabbath, God strikes up a beat from the first page. In the seventh day, you will Sabbath. What does the word Sabbath mean? Literally, it means stop. And that's what needs to happen. There needs to be like a stopping. Sometimes in, in the place of real despair, we, we don't realize how long it's been since we last really stopped. We think we have stopped. We think we're lazy, maybe. Maybe we're unemployed or something. We just feel like, I just, I'm unproductive. I'm useless. I don't need to stop. I need to work harder. You don't necessarily get it. Working harder is an external thing. It's not the same thing. Stopping and resting is an internal thing. Maybe you haven't done that for years. And true Sabbath means that we stop in that fullest sense. We truly rest from our labor. We truly get a complete shift of perspective. And we truly start to ask the questions, right? The real questions that our forceful companion, the cuckoo, won't allow. Doesn't want dialogue. Remember we said that. The questions need to be asked. You need to kind of almost come back and say, look, the pain that I'm going through is the pain lying to me? See, pain does that, right? Pain tells you, I'm never going. I'm, I'm here and I'm going to stay this bad always. That's what pain says. That's how pain is powerful in our hearts. That's how temptations are powerful. We think this is never going to change. Never, ever, ever. So the only way out of it is the illicit way. The only way out of it is my isolating myself. Cutting myself off. It's false. Pain is lying. It says this is never going to change. Never. But you know yourself, right? We all know that pain fluctuates. Levels become tolerable in a different way. And we start to have an objectivity and a different perspective. So just to stop and sit, sit back and say, wait a minute. Could the pain be lying to me? That's a key question, right? What about the question, what do I need? What do I think I need? I'm behaving as if I need something particularly. There's something that's been lost to me and it's so, it's so desperately needed. I've lost something. I can't live without it. I just can't imagine life without that thing. What's, what's the, the, the thing? What's the, the thing we've basically, the thing we've hoped in? The answer to that question is really revealing. If I feel like there's something that I so need that I can't, just can't do life in any way without it, man, does that reveal something about what we've been putting our hope in? We've put all our hope in something, maybe mistakenly. Maybe it's time to adjust our hopes. Maybe it's time to rethink, what should I be hoping in? You should ask those questions. What have I been hoping in? What do I hope in ultimately, foundationally in my life? Really? What about the question, what am I fearful about? What is it that I fear most of all? In fact, what am I ashamed of? Shame is so locked up with the suicidal instinct. Because the whole thing is isolation. Cut myself off. 
Why? Because I can't share this. No one gets it, and I don't want them to get it. I don't even want them to know. I don't, wanna, I don't want it to be looked at in a cold light of day. I, want, I don't want the judgmental world scrutinizing my heart and my life. I can't do that. I don't want to face, maybe it's a particular person. I can't, I can't face that person or those people. I can't face this situation. I can't face social media. I can't, I can't face the world. I can't do it. There's so much shame. I can't. It's so horrible. I don't even want to face it myself. I don't even like looking myself at what's in my heart, what's in my past. I'm so deeply unimpressed of my loathsome self. I can't open that up to anybody. So I'd rather cut myself off from everybody. Shame is so powerful. And that's actually why I wanted just to read the passage that we started with. So this is what I want to say particularly to us today. Jesus, Jesus speaks about a liar. A powerful person who, who controls by deception. That's how he does his work. And if we, if we live under shame, if we are controlled... We won't actually be able to talk, we won't be able to open up. And talking with people, opening up our lives, talking about what's been going on, talking about the things we're frightened of, the things that we despair of ourselves about, the things that have caused us the greatest grief and sorrow, will be part of our healing. If we can be prevented from doing that, then we're a little bit more of an easy target. I think this is why Paul in 2 Corinthians is so important for us. See, Paul is writing a letter to Corinth, which in the ancient world was the kind of thrusting, confident city. If you can make it there, you'll make it anywhere kind of city. And Paul is, Paul is living also in pre-Christian time. You know, it's not a Christian world he's writing to. So kind of Roman Greek world where honor and achievement is the only thing worth celebrating. Weakness is definitely not worth celebrating. The weak go to the wall and good thing too. No, one's, no one in the Roman Greek world is, is looking out for the people really struggling because we really care about the minorities, really care about the, the people who are struggling, people who are depressed, people who are low down. We really care about looking out for the downtrodden and the oppressed. Not at all. Not at all. That wasn't the culture at all. Paul, at a time like that, right into a city like that, says, this is what I've been going through. This is what's in my heart. This is what's been in my heart. And Paul, mind you, is a massive overachiever, you could say. If you could make a list of like the, the I don't know, six or seven most influential key history changers throughout all humankind, Paul would make it into the list. Most informed people would probably throw Paul in. And, and rightly too. Unbelievable intellect, incredible uh, charisma and ability and strength and stamina. Amazing person. Phenomenal person. He knew it as well. He talks about it in one place in Philippians chapter 3. He says, yeah, if anybody thinks that they're qualified, <laughs> if anybody out there thinks that they have anything to boast in, I've got more. 
He, kind of, he knew, he was kind of self-aware. He knew, yeah, I'm pretty qualified, I'm pretty gifted. I'm kind of, you know, I'm there. But he writes 2 Corinthians, which is a much longer letter than Philippians. And it's like one of the main themes of the letter is Paul celebrating his complete and utter weakness. Something's happened to him. He, he's got to the point where he's realized, actually, in all of his ability... The thing that actually, the, the thing that's most needed for him to have any relationship with God, any freedom, any joy, any life, any rescue, is to come face to face with his abject weakness and even despair. So he opens up about it in chapter 1. He says, I don't want you to be unaware. I want you to know how hard I've been pushed. I want you to know I've been brought to places where I'm so desperate I've despaired of life. I want you to know that about me. I'm, I'm an apostle. I'm preaching. I'm planting churches. I'm the guy. I want you to know. The guy that's in charge, the guy that's leading, unimpressive. Broken, despairing. Not what you thought. This is not, you know, Corinth's got talent. This is not, you know, just, just watch me. It's, it's like, no, listen, you need to know. I've discovered by some slow processes, some, some arduous suffering, some real pain, I'm broken. I'm desperate. I'm desperate. And he, he says, basically, that's the way to live. Before the end of the letter, he's saying, in my weakness, I am strong. His strength is made perfect in my weakness. In my weakness. His presence, his involvement, his power. He shows up. He dwells when I'm weak. When I haven't got, when, I know, when I'm in that place of despair. See, the, the thing is that the, the person that's suicidal and the Apostle Paul have got this in common. They've got this much in common. They've got to the point of seeing their desperate need, their desperate flawedness, their desperate failure, their hopelessness. They've got to that point. But the Apostle Paul, the way he's handled this, the way he's, what's happened is that he's seen in his weakness, he's kind of seen his genius, his real gift. This is, this is my basis of hope. I haven't got it. I must have Christ. He says it specifically. He says, he says, we felt we'd received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The whole point is to get me to the point of proper reliance on the God who raised his son from the dead. I've got to get to that point. Let me ask you, have you got to that point? Have you got to that point where you know you've got nothing to plead, nothing to prove, nothing to impress anybody with? Nothing. Nothing. We even heard earlier in the meeting about there's one who, having everything, made himself nothing. That's why there's hope for us. Because God's way of rescuing the nothings, the desperate, the people who should despair, if we only knew what was going on inwardly, if we only knew how desperate we really are before him, in order to rescue us, he came down to us. 
In order to rescue us, he became one of us. In order to save the nothings, the one who is truly something became nothing. The Bible says that he was cut off from the land of the living. Cut off, there's that word. He, he was abandoned, cursed on the cross. He was condemned by the world and abandoned by heaven. Hanging, cursed, naked on a tree. Despised, rejected. And the Bible says he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The person that's suicidal has bought into the idea that if there is a God, that God is irrelevant to their sorrow. That God is in a different universe, a different plane, doesn't know anything about their sorrow and their grief. And the Bible says, oh no, he's been there. He knows it. He came deliberately. He intentionally, he didn't have to. The one person in history, the one human being that didn't have to be born. And he chose it. Chose it in all its grit, all its horror, all its loneliness, all its pain, all its despair, depression, disappointment, setback, heartbreak, impending doom, everything, all the horror that we face, all the things you say, I can't do life. I promise you, the real God, not the made up gods, the real one, he's been there. He's been, he's seen it. He's been through it. He chose to. He didn't have to. He chose to. Because that's what he's like. It's who he is, being in very nature God. It's the kind of God he is. Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking on the nature of a slave. And God raised him up. And Paul says, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. There's hope, right? If Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, I've got nothing to offer you at all. Just, I don't know, just play REM, everybody hurts. That's all I can do. That's all I can do, just you know, sing another happy song. That's the best I've got for you. I promise you, I've got nothing better. But Jesus did rise from the dead. Jesus, the Son of God, was raised from the dead. It gives us hope. It gives us extraordinary hope. He's involved in the world. He's involved in life. He's raising, he's saving, he's rescuing from the worst of despair. And he can do that for anybody here today. Whether you've been suicidal or not, you might think, well, it's not for me, this sermon. I beg to differ. This sermon is for everybody because we all need to come to the point of seeing our desperate need and our great saviour. There's no other hope. Let's pray right now. Father, we want to come to you trusting you because we can't trust ourselves. We can't. So we pray that the Holy Spirit would now come and rescue us from our self-confidence and bring us to a place of trusting in Jesus finding all the hope we need in him. According to your mercy, amen.